0: Yeah, she's on her way. Mm-hmm. That's correct. Go for it. Thanks a lot, Mike. Um, uh, my name is Bruce. You don't have to call me doctor or anything like that. It's, Bruce is fine. Um, I have uh, been a Christian for a number of years. The very first time I was in Japan, I was in the Navy. Um, I was a committed Christian at a very young age, uh, while serving in the Navy. Uh, I was doing Bible studies on board our ship, holding church services, and uh, at one time, I was the youngest person on board that ship. I actually quit school, the last grade I completed was only the 8th grade, and uh, because I came... It's supposed to be. Yeah, that's on. Um, um, I'll I'll speak up a little louder. Um, I grew up in a family that wasn't very well-supported and so I decided I was going to quit school and join the Navy. And so I was the youngest kid in boot camp and on board ship. Uh, It was during that experience, though, that I arrived in Japan for the first time, uh, pulling into Yokosuka Harbor, and uh, I had a God experience. I call it the God experience when I first entered into Yokosuka because I've been to a number of different ports. And I, I can honestly say that Yucuca wasn't even the most beautiful port that I ever saw. Uh, Hong Kong was, and San Diego was. I was our ship was based in San Diego, and so. But I, when I pulled into Yucuca, I'm standing on the forecastle of the ship, and uh, something happened to me. Uh, I felt my heart moving to the left, and I've never had that experience since then. And I, I realized that this was going to be a special place for me. I didn't know how, I didn't know what to expect. I just kept my heart open. And every port that I went to, I was visiting missionaries uh, during that time as well. So I was getting exposure to how they viewed the world at the same time, and I was really young. So after that, um, uh, I determined on that Westpac that I was going to propose to my my current wife (laughs) of over 37 years now. Wondering why she isn't here. I was going to ask her to pray. Um, so, um, so anyway, um, that was my first experience with Japan. And within a year after that, I'm living in Okinawa, Japan, with my wife, uh, Marilyn. And that's the first time I became a pastor as well. I'm in the military, and I'm an associate pastor of a church in Okinawa, Japan. And that's how I got exposed to the ministry at, at the same time. So, that's pretty much my background in in that sense. After I got out of the Navy, I started going to Bible school, uh, and then I went back as a a civilian, as a pastor back to Okinawa, Japan again. After that, I came back to, uh, and moved to Virginia to go to Regent University. I went to the Divinity School, and then about eight years after I graduated from there, I was enrolled into their doctorate program, and that's when I started studying leadership uh, Doctor of Strategic Leadership is what the DSL stands for. Um, and in that process, within the first year of my studies there, I realized the, the final project or dissertation that I wanted to work on. And that was how leaders can understand and reduce stress on the working floor. I used to work for the post office at one time, so when you hear the phrase going postal, I knew exactly what that meant. Um, because I saw it. I saw people turning on themselves, on one another, and uh, because of the, the, the extreme amount of stress that they were under, because of all the deadlines that they had, they had multiple deadlines throughout the day, throughout the evening hours, and uh, throughout the uh, midnight hours as well. And when you don't meet them deadlines, there's somebody on your back. And so the stress level was pretty high, so when I left there and started working on my doctoral program, it made all sense to me, because there's ways that leaders can reduce the amount of stress that their employees are under. Well, after graduating from that, I started studying not only stress, occupational stress, then it evolved into chronic stress, and then it evolved into post-traumatic stress disorder, and then that next stage, I started realizing what post-traumatic growth was all about. So, in the first part of this presentation, I'm going to show you just my trip from uh, recent trip to Japan and uh, my experience with Fukushima. Uh, because I was able to tour through the town of Fukushima just two and a half years after the nuclear disaster, I was only able to stay in that town for an hour, though, because the radiation levels were pretty high. So, um, but it's a, it's desolate now. So, um, Jeff, if you turn to the next slide. So, um, in this particular passage here, we find in Psalms. in this this passage in Psalms that that God's heart is for the nations. Uh, He desires to bring salvation to the people, and he cares for these nations. And um, you notice in in the book of Psalms that there is a number of passages where God shows his heart revealed by the word nations. And in some particular passages, I I pen in the word Japan. So you find that uh, throughout my Bible. In, in many different places there. So, um, so when, I, when I go to Japan every year, uh, I'm always mindful that God's heart is for the Japanese people, despite the fact that there's only less than one-half of one percent Christian in all of Japan there. Uh, their, their religion is pretty much Zen Buddhism and Shintoism, and Shinto is, a, is an animistic form of religion there, it's ancestor worship. Uh, and it's very much ingrined into that culture. Uh, so, when, when a Japanese person comes to know the Lord, uh, it's the real deal, usually, with them. Uh, the hard part for them is getting beyond the family heritage, uh, where this, these religious systems are so ingrined, and it's been that way for generations after generations. So, uh, to the next slide. In my last trip, uh, I traveled to the northernmost island of Hokkaido. Uh, I don't have my, I don't know what I did with my clicker there. Um, but anyway, the northernmost island of Hokkaido is where I often go to now. Uh, there's a Bible school up there called Christ for the Nations. It's near the town of uh, Sapporo, which is the largest city in Hokkaido. And then the main island, the big island, is Honshu, and I did some work in um, Osaka and Tokyo this last time, and uh, then uh, Kyushu, which uh, I was in Fukuoka and Kumamoto in those major cities there. So, so based on that, um, if you go on to the next slide, that's it right there, Ron. Thank you. So moving on, um, these are. Yeah, that's fine. There was money in there. There was? Oh. <laughs> glad you got it. Um, these are, uh, I was touring uh, back in 2015, uh, Miyagi and uh, Fukushima prefectures, where I was doing a number of different seminars for people that were in the disaster areas. And so this, this little tower here, uh, which was in the Miyagi prefecture, is there was people there. Uh, this is like a a siren tower uh, to warn the the neighborhood that an impending disaster was coming or whatever. So there was three people in that tower during the earthquake, and they were alarming the people to get out, and they stayed there the whole time not knowing how bad the tsunami was going to be. And uh, when the tsunami came, it ripped apart that entire tower and killed everybody that was inside it. Um, now there was kind of like a valley in that area there, and on top of this this hill, or it was it was really well elevated. There was a hospital up there, and um, and I got to this one pole that you don't see. I didn't show that in one of these pictures here. Uh, there was a measurement up above this high, and that's where the water level came. So everything below that, up on this hill, was was underwater. It killed, I don't know how many people, but altogether, almost 20,000 people lost their lives uh, during that day. So you're talking about a 9.0 earthquake, um, then the tsunami, and then the nuclear power plant disaster. This right here, these pictures here, are in Fukushima. This right here is the Shinto Temple. Now, the Japanese people are really pristine when it comes to land masses. how their neighborhoods are, uh, and you can see the destruction there of this temple. Um, and this was two and a half years after the, after the fact. Uh, this here is a shop, and you can see all the merchandise is still on the shelves. Never to be used, because it's all radiated. So, um, this was two and a half years after the fact, and the only people that were in there were people that were scraping the top soils and they were putting them in staging areas that you see here in black bags, not knowing where they're going to put this radiated soil or radiated material or, by, or, or both. So, And these are littered all over uh, Miyagi and Fukushima prefectures. So, so anyway, next slide. Now, this was the power plant before the disaster. And this is what it looks like after the disaster. <laughs> I was only roughly two miles from there, both my, my wife and I. And um, you could see the cranes from the distance of where we were at. And um, it's a ghost town. And you ask the question there was a seawall in front of this power plant. Why didn't it stop the tsunami? It's over three feet high. And the purpose of that was to stop the tsunami. The problem was is that during that 9.0 earthquake, there were parts of the coastline of Japan that sunk, and it collapsed three feet in front of the Fukushima power plant. It completely nullified the seawall. And so the tsunami just rushed in and destroyed uh, just everything in its path. So if you look here, there was a survey by NHK World News, which is the national uh, newscast in Japan, and they did this survey, uh, sending out a survey to 5,900 survivors of the, uh, of the 9-11 disaster. And just, uh, I forgot to tell you this, that today marks the 7th anniversary of that disaster. March 11, 2011 was a disaster. So I kind of found, I found it God's timing that Camper and Ron set this date up for me to, to present this, um, this presentation. So... Out of 5,700 surveys, they were asking the question, do you feel like the disaster is still on the minds of the Japanese people? And 30% responded, saying that 74, or 30% responded, and out of that 30%, 74% said that they believe that the Japanese people are starting to lose the memory of the effects of the disaster itself, which is kind of bizarre when you think about that. But the reason why they said that is because the land mass and many of these places were so radically changed, because you're talking about saltwater destroying farmland. And when you look at the nation of Japan, it's roughly the size of California, but with half the U.S. population. That's a small landmass, and roughly two-thirds of that landmass is mountainous. So you don't have a lot of places where people can live, and and yet now you're talking about Fukushima and Miyagi prefectures decimated because of the tsunami. So things are changing in Japan. The population growth is nullified now because they don't have a population growth every year. The most population they had was in 2008. Now it's going down. Less young people are getting married now. They're, they're not having families. So their, their population growth is decreasing over the years now. Uh, next slide. Now I'm going to I'm going to move rapidly. Now I'm going to show you some slides from my last trip. This is Gerald Goodall and uh, Narika and uh, Narika and uh, Tofu Kajikawasan. Uh, they are directors of the school that I typically teach at in Hokkaido. Uh, and next slide. Uh, and this is some of the students that I worked with this last year that I was there. Uh, when, I, when I fly out to Japan, I'm either teaching theology, occupational stress, leadership, or uh, post-traumatic growth. So I've actually attended eight schools altogether, so I have various interests. My wife calls me a Renaissance man now because I have so many different interests right now. So, but those are my primary interests. So next slide. Um, this, if you look at this here, this is a church building. And this is an old pachinko parlor, uh, if you know what that is. Uh, a pachinko parlor in Japan is a gambling site, actually. And so what they did is this church bought the building, because the pachinko went out of business. They bought the building and they turned it into a church. This here is Jerry Jansen and his wife, Makiko. Um, and um, Jerry is from America. He has been a pastor there for 30 years now and he has probably the largest church now. It's an international church. Uh, their congregation represents every single continent throughout the world, uh, and he has roughly 300 people there at this church. I call this my second church home. This is my first church home. That's my second. Every year I fly out to Japan, I'm attending church there. So, and these are some of my friends, Japanese uh, and uh, Westerners, uh, Person in the yellow is from Germany. Person next to him, Gerald, is from originally from uh, New Zealand. And then you have people from Japan, South Africa, Europe, and so on and so forth. So um, uh, Gustavo here, he is from Argentina. And uh, that's our friend Ono, Ono-san, we call him. So, next slide. From there, I taught at this church uh, in a place called Iwamizawa. I talked about uh, mirror neurons uh, that you find in the brain, and I did a uh, comparative contrast between mirror neurons and being of one mind in Christ uh, in the scriptures. So next slide. <clears throat> and then I went to a resort, um, uh, Nisuke, uh Resort Center, uh, which is up also in Hokkaido. We did a Bible study up there. A YWAM base is going to be starting out there in the next uh, year. So it's uh, a number of people like to go there. Uh, it is the number one resort center in Hokkaido. Next slide. Uh, and this is uh, Brent Kui. He is the MTW representative in Osaka, Japan. Oh. oh, no. <laughs> well, that's Brent Kui. <laughs> um, he is the interim pre- president of a new two-year business school that's starting out in Osaka. There's an English program that's there right now. Uh, they want to start this school because in Japan, uh, most of the students growing up in uh, junior high, high school, they're going to two or three different schools at the same time uh, because the, the major purpose is they need to pass the college entrance exam. If they don't pass, they don't get in. That's one of the reasons why there's such a high suicide rate with young people in Japan. It's one of the highest in the world. And uh, so what this school is trying to do is give them a second chance. Uh, So uh, Genesis is what it's called, Genesis International College, um, and uh, they're in the beginning of stages now of trying to set this up. Next slide. These are two pastors, Mustard Seed Christian Fellowship that Brent goes to. I got to meet them before I left Osaka. Uh, Wonderful people. Uh, Next slide. Uh, And Brent took me on a tour of Osaka, and this is the ancient Osaka Castle, uh, which I thought was beautiful. It's not the first time I saw uh, a Japanese castle, uh, but it is, uh, at least at that point, uh, the second largest I ever saw. The biggest one was the Emperor's Palace. Not that I went inside, I didn't. I saw it from the distance. Next slide. Uh, And this is Brent again teaching an English class here, and this is the address, so on and so forth. Um, Next slide. Uh, This person here is Don Thompson. He is the Director of Operation Blessing throughout all of Japan. I have been working with him for the last three to four years. Uh, We have been doing uh, a number of seminars on post-traumatic growth together uh, throughout Honshu, and this last year was in uh, Kyushu. Uh, Next slide. Uh, About a year and a half to two years ago, there was a disaster in Kumamoto. Uh, First, there was an earthquake that was there, and a couple weeks later, there was a monsoon rain that devastated neighborhoods. And if you look here, you can see that patch of earth there between the trees. Water was pouring out during one of these storms and just leveled this once beautiful neighborhood. Um, And so Don's team, this is one of the team members there, he's pointing out this line here of where the water levels reached. And if you look here, Don is talking to this one person there who grew up in that neighborhood, and this here was his bedroom on the second level of his house, completely devastated. On, uh, or Fortunately for him and his parents, who still live there, they, his parents were not there at the time. And so his family survived, but there were other people in that neighborhood that did not survive. So. Last year, we did a seminar on post-traumatic growth for the people of Kumamoto, Um, and um, so next slide, and here are some more pictures of the devastation there that uh, Operation Blessing had been working on. So next slide. Uh, This is the seminar at Kumamoto. These two people here were my students up in Hokkaido. Uh, They were both being trained to be pastors of uh, a church in Japan and they are now pastoring a church in uh, Kumamoto. So um, this is a newspaper reporter that uh, was trying to uh, uh, write an article of the, the seminar itself. So uh, moving on to the next slide. You can tell I'm trying to get through these slides so I can get into post-traumatic growth with you. Um, after the Kumamoto seminar, we, we toured through um, a, a Shinto temple, or Shinto shrine, I should call it. Um, and um, <clears throat> the moment I walk through, this is called a the torii. There's over 100,000 toris throughout Japan. And what a torii represents is the gateway to the gods. Remember, they're very polytheistic in their nature. So there's roughly 80,000 different kamis. They call them kami. Kamis throughout Japan, 80,000. Those are gods, 80,000 gods. Now, if you think that's a lot, in Taoism, there is, I'm sorry, not Taoism, um, uh, uh, Hinduism. There's 330 million gods in Hinduism. 330 million. So, one of the classes that I taught at the university uh, is uh, world religions. It's my favorite class on the undergraduate level. So, yeah, in in, uh, Hinduism, there's 330 million gods. So um, yeah, I'll take that. Thank you. This is my wife, Marilyn. She's my better half. <laughs> so, um, But what I'm getting at is um, I'm, I feel kind of sensitive to the people of Japan. And every once in a while, I feel, I feel an oppression. And when I, the moment I walk through the torii into that shrine area, I felt a heaviness there, and I knew exactly what it was. Um, I don't feel that all the time, but every once in a while in Japan, I do. Uh, so when you have over eighty thousand gods in Japan, and some of these shrines, you know, they have ears but they don't hear, they have eyes but they don't see, they have they have noses but they don't smell, they have mouths but they don't talk, according to you know how the Old Testament li- lies it all this out. Um, those that make them are like them, as the passage goes. So, um, but they worship this, and behind some of these icons lies a Spirit, and every once in a while I feel it. so. But I have God's Spirit in me, and that makes, that makes a difference in the world. Next, next slide. Um, After Kumamoto, we flew up to Tokyo and um, from Osaka, I took a bullet train to uh, uh, Fukuoka where I met Don. It's the first time I've ever been on a bullet train and man was that fast. (laughs) And it was smooth too. I was surprised how smooth it was when you're going 200 miles an hour on a track. Uh, But at Kumamoto, Don told me that Bruce, you're going to be televised in Tokyo. what? And he said, yeah, a major uh, uh, cable network is going to be filming the whole thing and it's going to be broadcasted throughout Japan. And that excited me, not for the simple fact that I'm going to be televised, because I I typically don't like a camera on me anyway, Uh, but now the message of post-traumatic growth can be reached out through many audiences throughout the entire nation of Japan, including South Korea. Uh, which all I can explain was, man, God is amazing. Uh, not for my sake, but for His sake, and for His message. So, so we had, we had uh, the cameras were set up, the people were in this, uh, in a downtown area of Tokyo, just a couple blocks from the Emperor's Palace. It's amazing. It's an amazing sight, uh, amazing experience. Next slide. So. Um, After the the whole seminar was over, we went out to dinner, and Marilyn has been working with Miyuki here for over two years teaching English through Skype. This is the first time they got to see one another and spend time together. And um, this is Don Thompson's wife, Carol. Uh, The first time Carol and Marilyn met, they they really hit it off, Um, probably more so than Don and I did, uh, which is kind of exciting to see. Next slide. And uh, Carol teaches English as a second language to the Japanese community uh, outside of Tokyo. And uh, they invited Marilyn to join them, uh, which was wonderful to see that. And I'm glad that he was there, because if he wasn't there, I don't think I would have showed up, (laughs) because I would have been the only guy there then. So anyway, next slide. And then they took us to a resort center up in the mountains uh, about an hour and a half outside of Tokyo someplace. Next slide. And one day we were really hungry. As you can tell, Marilyn was really full after that. (laughs) And uh, so we had to have sushi. And in sushi, you can see behind there, this is a conveyor belt. And you see these peppered all over Japan. So you're sitting around this conveyor belt and you take what you want. And you pay by the color of the plates there. And it's the freshest sushi you'll ever have is in Japan. It melts. It literally melts in your mouth. So anyway, I, I like that picture there. It's one of my favorite pictures of my wife.
1: <laughs>
0: but in Japan, I'd call her my oksan. Oksan means wife. So next slide. OK, now let me tell you about what I do uh, in post-traumatic growth. <clears throat> Dennis, in his sermon this morning, and what you'll hear if you weren't in the early morning service, is he, he talked about the relationship uh, with Peter in, in John, the 13th chapter, and how Peter cut off a Roman soldier's ear because they were going to take Jesus away. Why did, and then he asked the question, why did he cut off his ear? He shows all this bravery, and prior to that he said, I'm willing to even die for you, and yet... Just hours later, uh, he's denying Christ. He's afraid. That's part of the the fight, fight, and and freeze response to stress. Fight, flight, freeze. Fight, flight, freeze. You see it in the Garden of Eden right after the sin. Adam and Eve are hiding. They're running, and then they hide behind a bush. And they hear the voice, Adam, where are you? like he didn't already know. So they're hiding. They're under stress now. Peter is under stress. Now, around Jesus, he feels safe because he's God. He knows it. Peter knows it. He's seen the miracles. He's seen the power of Christ. He's seen all that. He's around. He's in his safety net. Now Jesus is saying, I'm going to go someplace, and where I go, you can't come. What? What do you mean? I can't come. And then he starts, Peter. The arrogance behind Peter, or maybe not arrogance. The, the whole idea of, of, uh, trying to think that he knows more than Jesus himself. Saying, he starts rebuking Jesus, saying, "You're not going to die." And then Jesus says, "Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me. What? What's that all about?" And then when Peter sees Jesus being whipped, scorned. He flees. His safety net is gone. What's going on? There's three parts to your brain. Cerebral cortex, in the center there is the subcortex, or the limbic system, and then the brainstem. All of that is about survival. Brainstem is about reactions. The pons is for sleep. The medulla oblongata is for heart rate. The subcortex is all emotion. All of it is emotion. The Cerebral cortex is all about language and reasoning. And in between all that is a highway, a network <coughs> highway, called the reticular activating system. It's communicating with one another, up and down, back and forth, constantly in communication with one another. But when there's a threat, Because the brain is designed for survival, oftentimes we panic. See, the cerebral cortex, though, can reason this thing out. In other words, it can say, wait, let me change the message. So if somebody's under great fear, over time they can change the message to, no, I don't have to be afraid. Chronic stress works in a way that protects the body itself. So in other words, when you feel a certain amount of stress going on inside, the, inside, whether it's sociological or psychological, there's certain chemicals that are going off in the brain now. It goes from the cerebral cortex to the thalamus to the hypothalamus um, to the hippocampus. All, all different centers of the brain are sending signals Hippocampus then sends a message to the adrenal glands, which is right above the kidneys, on both sides. So, in the adrenal glands is divided into two areas, the uh, medulla and the cortex. The cortex emits two different types of hormones, glucocorticoids and cortisol. Glucocorticoids then, when it gets up in the brain, in the hippocampus, over a long period of time, it starts destroying the antennas that are in those brain cells, See, the thing is is that your body is reproducing cells 25 million times per second. It's called mitosis. 25 million times per second. That's a lot of reproduction. But brain cells, they don't reproduce. They generate between the ages of of, uh, conception to to, uh, two years old, roughly. After two years old, They don't produce anymore. After that, what you have is what you get. That's why when you, let's say if somebody gets drunk, constantly is drunk, they're destroying brain cells. They don't get that back. So uh, glucocorticoids, it begins to destroy the receptors of the brain cells within the hippocampus. That's part of stress. Cortisol, on the other hand, if it remains in your bloodstream for a long period of time, it destroys your WBCs, white blood cell count. And when it does that, you're more apt to become sick, have tumors, you can have, uh, develop cancer, heart disease, strokes, um, hypertension. Your body is turning on itself under chronic stress. Now, these hormones are good, initially, because it's supposed to give you that fight-or-flight instinct to to run and hide or fight to protect yourself. The problem is, is that we were designed in the garden to enjoy life, to run from one point to the garden to the next. But when sin came in, that changed everything. Because now, mankind eventually becomes hunter-gatherers. Eventually, they have a civilization in Sumer, and then in Egypt, where they're settling down a little bit. But there's constant warfare. People constantly trying to protect what they have, trying to protect their children, trying to grow and, ma- and survive, and that is constant stress. One of the reasons why I think that there's a reduction in life, uh, uh, years of life. Um, but anyway, that's a, that's a whole other matter. But see, the brain is geared for survival. And when we're under constant stress, that stress hormone begins to turn on us. And you are not immune to this. It doesn't uh, discriminate between one person to the next. Stress eventually has its effect. Now the problem now is when it turns to chronic stress or even post-traumatic stress, that changes everything. And the reason why that is, is because when somebody faces trauma, the brain in many areas begins to shut down. And when somebody has a trigger, it reminds them of something. They they associate it with something. For instance, people coming back from Vietnam 20 years after the fact, 20 to 30 percent of all the soldiers coming back from Vietnam still were experiencing PTSD. And 16 percent of all women that served in Vietnam also experienced PTSD. and all of those, 16% were nurses. All of them were nurses. Now, they weren't in the battlefield. They were exposed to the effects of the battlefield. So trauma can come, let's say, for instance, with the Japanese people. People could have been 100 miles away from the tsunami area, and yet when they saw what was happening on TV, they began to experience PTSD. The reason why is because they saw the trauma. They were exposed to it that way. So a trigger happens. Let's say they hear a, a, a loud noise. With Vietnam victims, it was a, uh, like a car backfire; and sounded like a, a gunshot. I have a friend of mine right now uh, who was a command sergeant major in the Army and spent you know, part of his time in the Army in two different wars. He lives out in the farm out in the Surrey area, and people are hunting on his property sometimes because he owns a lot of land, and it triggers something inside him. We went to see this film on the, or the Revolutionary War one day at a museum, and I could see the trigger starting to go off. He was covering his face, and it was a revolutionary depiction Uh actors doing this. Uh, it was very mild, but, it was, uh, but I could see, and I said, "Dwayne, we need to get out of here, and he said, I'll be okay, just give me a moment. So we sat there, I could see the triggers going off. Now a flashback works kind of like what happens after a trigger. And a flashback can last for seconds, minutes, hours, days. And things within the brain start shutting off. Now remember what I said before, the brain is always communicating with one another. Oftentimes, when a flashback happens, there's this little, little, Ball thing within the center part of your brain called the amygdala. It works like a fire alarm. And when a flashback happens, that whole thing is going off. Beam, 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 beam. And all parts of the brain, for the most part, are shut down except one area, the occipital lobe, which is in the back here. And up in the upper part of that is called Brodman's number 19. And that is like it's flashing, bam, bam, bam. In other words, when they're having a flashback, they're in the moment. It's like if they are a Vietnam veteran, they're in the battlefield right now. If they're a Gulf War veteran, they're in the battlefield at that very moment. And it could be years after the fact. And that can last again seconds, minutes, hours, even days. That's a flashback. Next slide. Uh, I pretty much went over the brain, so uh, you can see here. Here's the amygdala there, and then you can't really see this, but the occipital lobe is in this area here. So, next slide. Um, now, when I'm talking to Japanese people, uh, whether they're social workers, victims of the disaster, or um, <clears throat> or family members to victims of the disaster, I go through this process here. These are some famous pictures. But uh, let's say, for instance, um, you're one of these people in that boat, and here comes this tsunami wave crashing down upon you. Chances are you're going to experience some type of trauma, because people are going to either die in that boat. uh, Some of them may die. A few may survive. But it represents the trauma that they go through. And then there's different kinds of feelings that go through them, like this scream here by Uh, Edvard Moch or the the anxiety level here, where there's this blank stare on their faces. So then you have this this progression of art that I bring them through, and then we see um, Rembrandt's The Good Samaritan. These people need help, because eventually we want to bring them to Monet's Calm Seas or Sunrise. You call it that. The stillness of the water. So they experience trauma with a tsunami, and I want to bring them to calm waters. So what I'm doing is I'm providing a map, an avenue, a picture for them to uh, expose themselves to. Uh, Because oftentimes, when people face trauma, remember, brains start shutting down. So trauma takes the ability of how to reason away from them, or even the process of even thinking, trauma takes that away from them. So next slide. So these are the areas that we, uh, people with post-traumatic growth try to uh, present and experience. Uh, Post-traumatic growth. Now, to give you an idea, what's the difference between post-traumatic stress disorder and post-traumatic growth? Post-traumatic growth takes the energy from PTSD and creates a whole new scenario. In other words, we're trying to create a whole new story for them or to try and interpret, reinterpret, the events that they have faced uh, based on the trauma. So in this process, they're trying to gain personal strength, appreciation for life, being able to relate to others better, new possibilities, and even the spiritual dimension. All of that encompasses mindfulness, which in the oriental uh, perspective, that's a real special thing. So, next slide. Now, this is what's exciting about the culture of Japan. In their culture, they have this principle called kensubi. Now, in that, um, for centuries now, they, uh, if you have a broken pot or something like that, instead of discarding it, let's repair it by using uh, a type of gold. And so, in other words, within their culture, they're saying that Just because it's shattered doesn't mean it loses its beauty. Through their shatteredness, you can create an even better, more beautiful piece of pottery. And so what we do in post-traumatic growth is to use that same experience for the human being. Next slide. So I want you to look at these trees here. Let's say that there's a hurricane coming this way. You have some trees that are battered, or not battered, but you can see the wind blowing. Uh, they're stiff, they, uh, they hold on, uh, they're not moved, which represents some people. Then you've got other people that are bending, but they're not breaking. But then you have other people that become disfigured. These are the people that we're looking at here because they face trauma. Because remember, trauma changes people, changes them. So, now, what is this? I'm asking the question, what is that? It's a tree. Was it a tree before the, the wind? Yes. Was it a tree after the storm? Yes. It's shaped differently. It can still provide a home for animals. It can still provide shade for a person. But it's reconfigured in a different way now. So with post-traumatic growth, we're trying to find, help the person realize that they're still a person, that they're still valuable, that they can experience kintsugi in a very unique way. Next slide. Uh, And this is um, Stephen Joseph. He says this. There's a group of people who, like the third tree, grow following adversity. They remain emotionally affected, but their sense of self, use of life, priorities, goals for the future, and their behaviors have been reconfigured in a positive way in the light of their experiences. So, in post-traumatic growth, we use the energy from the PTSD and make a transformation, but that takes time. Next slide. Now, in order to do this, um, two doctors from the University of North Carolina, Charlottesville, Tadeci and Calhoun, uh, they devised this plan for post-traumatic growth about 25, 30 years ago. Um, but this has been an ancient process through Taoism for thousands of years. They just had rediscovered this and put it into a clinical setting here now. But what they call is, in order for somebody to be to get the help that they need through from trauma, they have this what they call you know, the expert companion. The expert companion is a person that walks with them, almost like discipleship. They walk with them. They help them through their, the trauma that they go through. So my question to you is, which person up here is the expert companion? Well, you have two choices. Brian, this is not rocket science. <laughs> Uh, I'm sorry? Green. That's correct, the green person. The reason why the expert companion is a green person is because he's letting the person that was traumatized lead. See, the, the person that was traumatized can only go so far. And when he feels uncomfortable, the expert companion doesn't try and push him, just encourages him as far as he can go. And then they stop, and then they come back another day and then another day. It's just like discipleship. So, the expert companion is there to comfort them, to walk with them. It's not a, necessarily a clinical setting. It's a setting of friendship and compassion. Just like Jesus had with Peter. It's always with him. And then there was a period of time where you gotta let them go, like Jesus did. And then he sent his Holy Spirit to Peter to comfort him. And through Peter's weakness, he became strong. Through PTSD, that weakness, they can become strong. Next slide. And this is one of the founders of post-traumatic growth. Uh, Next slide. And this is where we're trying to get them calm seas. Now, when I was at in the seminar in Tokyo after all the filming was done. Um, <clears throat> I had the morning sessions. There was two other people that, there was a clinical counselor there and her husband, which was a theologian, uh, doctor, I, I forgot his, his first name. Uh, but anyway, in that, in that process, after the whole thing was over, they had questions and answers. And so they wanted me to be up there to do questions and answers. So I took the first question. After five minutes, I was trying to sit down to let the other participants be asked questions. And Don said, no, don't do that. Just keep on talking. Another five minutes went by. I'm trying to sit down now. He said, Bruce, don't sit down. Still keep talking. So I said, okay, I'm going to open this wide open now. Most of the people in there were pastors, Japanese pastors from many different places throughout Japan. And so I, I started making the comparison between the expert companion and disciple mentor mentor, protege relationship. I put it in a theological basis and I put it in a business sense as well. After I was done that next five minutes, something happened in there that I wasn't expecting at all. Everyone started clapping. I've never seen that in a Q&A session. But these pastors realized that through their relationship with other people, with people that were traumatized within their own churches, they can become their expert companions. And they can use it as a form of discipleship. And it worked for them. And they got excited about that. So, this is what I do when I fly out to Japan. This is one of the facets that I do when I fly out to Japan every year. Uh, my next trip is scheduled to uh, sometime in October. Uh, I'm, trying to, uh, I'm going to be up in Hokkaido teaching at the Bible school. I'm hoping I can get to Nagasaki this year. I have some friends in Nagasaki who are missionaries, and uh, we are we're in the process of trying to get something down right now to do a seminar or something like that. And then I'll be working with Operation Blessing again sometime in October as well. So is, any questions? I have a couple questions. When you go back, will you be teaching to um, the same type of pastors, or do you talk Just to lay different. people generally? Or? Lay people, i talk talked to government officials, uh, <laughs> victims, uh, social workers. Uh, Most of the people that I talk with when I'm traveling in Honshu and Kyushu uh, are not Christians. It just so happened that there was a number of pastors in Tokyo at this seminar. So, yeah? It seems like this idea of showing this, from it also seems It does. It does. It does. See, my, one of the things that I learned that the Japanese are very interested in my story because, because of the things that I had to face as a child. That's why I quit school in the eighth grade. Uh, when I was in the military in my first year, they found out I was functionally illiterate. It wasn't until after I, I got my GED, and then nine years later, I finally got my, my undergraduate degree, my bachelor's degree. It took me nine years to be able to do that. And it was my senior year that I found out I was dyslexic. And that changed everything, at that point. Because then I finally realized why I was an idiot all, all the years growing up. My mother thought I was another Jethro Bodine. That's how she looked at me, if you remember the Beverly Hillbillies. She looked at me as a Jethro Bodine. I hated to read. Now it's my favorite hobby. But see, the point is, is that through my weakness and through the Lord, and through discipleship. I had a person that discipled me in the Lord. He taught me how to read through the scriptures. uh, And I spent two years with him. His name is Rick Gregory. Um, Through that weakness, it became my strength. But it was the Lord that did it. It wasn't in me to do it. It was the Lord that did it. Now, if I can get the Japanese to look at that, because they're very interested in that story when I get to it. And Don, he keeps on telling me, share the story, Bruce. Share the story. Share the story. Because many Japanese are hurting especially young people, because they failed that college entrance exam. They, they hurt inside. They want a second chance, and you know what? They deserve that second chance, and God is the God of second chances. That's great. Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you so much for Bruce coming and sharing with us the work that uh, you are doing through him uh, in mm-hmm. Japan. Let me just pray that uh, the blessing... That he shares with them will continue. And, uh, there will be uh, life-changing experiences amongst individuals uh, in Japan. We pray this. Thank you, Bruce. thank you, everyone.